Hey up ice coffee listeners, this episode is coming to you from Loosh Budgie Studios in Point Cook, where my colleague from Storytelling Australia, Cameron Sharp, is gearing up pre-production on an Australian drama podcast, The Ladies of Badoo Springs. Well, it finally happened. They caught up with me in spite of my trying to hide in plain sight. The advertisers have noticed my output and asked if they can give me money for shilling stuff as part of my podcast. I asked you not to tell anyone about this series, but the download numbers just continued to grow, and now I'm on the radar of advertising brokers, and they'll likely keep sending me offers I'd have to be an idiot to ignore. There's my out, you see. I might not be an idiot, but I do impressions, and I'm ignoring their offers. See me go. Ignoring them like a rock. Hard out ignorance. No advertising for you. But, in case you're wondering what iced coffee with ads would sound like, Here's what you're missing out on. Have you ever experienced limp dick disappointment? Have you tried getting your partner to wear a wig and say that thing you get really turned on by? But it just didn't work? There must be a better way. There is. Dick pills. Buy dick pills. Making limp dicks hard because hard dicks are the end goal all societies should be working towards at all times. Hair loss getting you down? We've got pills for that too, you bald cretin. Fear and shame for you who ignore my calls to be maximally hirsute and well-served by pill-mediated hard dicks. And here's an idea. We'll bring you styrofoam-packaged food because you're too important to put time and energy into learning how to shop for groceries and cook for yourself. Let us take care of the tasks people have taken on since, since before language existed because taking your money for our goods and services is what drives capitalism and as everyone knows, capitalism is good and the invisible hand on the tiller of the market will save us from any negative consequences of treating the resources of our planet as infinite. We love you, Adam Smith, the hairy economist whose dick was always hard and whose food always turned up in maximum plastic packaging. Advertising. Using fear and shame to get you to consume goods and services and throwing an occasional manky bone to our community creators and charities. Sweet, sweet capitalism. The rest of this episode I'm turning over to Dr. Santiago de la Vega, ornithologist and veteran of several stays at Argentine research stations in Antarctica. Being of a similar vintage, I'm sometimes mistaken for Santiago by the guests who travel with us on the ships, and I'm fine with that. He's handsome, suave, dances well, and he's funny as, and he speaks with a very cool accent, so being mistaken for him is a feather in my cap. Going the other way mightn't be as pleasing for him but I think people are just latching onto the greyness of the hair. They're certainly not heeding the quantity of that hair, but there's pills for that, as I mentioned at the start of this episode. Des Moines Point duties cut our discussion about Santiago's time with the Argentine research stations short, and my truncated contracting season precluded our following up. Unfinished business. I don't doubt I'll catch up with him in his beloved Buenos Aires at some point, if not working together again. I hope the latter, as his good company as I hope even this brief exposure to his company demonstrates for you. You can edit long or short. Okay. So I'm sitting on the doorstep at the hut. <laughs> at um, Damoy Point, Dorian Bay, with Santiago de la Vega from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Santi, you have a lot of experience in biology research at the Argentine stations. Can you tell listeners about how you first came to Antarctica? Hello, Matt. Yes. Yeah, my first time in Antarctica was a very long time ago. I cannot believe how fast it goes time. 
So I spent a whole year in Esperanza Station, Home Bay, northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, 1987. So as soon as I got my degree in biology, I was involved there in a coastal ecology program. We have a diving program. was starting at this moment with uh, researchers from Canada. So we were a small team of free biologists during the summer, free divers during the summer, and just two divers and myself during the winter. And what were the particular questions that you were seeking to answer with the, the research program? So one of the, one of the key things, just not, not to focus on the particular interest of the research program itself, but why they choose Esperanza Station, one of the idea at this point, you know that Argentina, Chile and England, we overlap, we have been overlapping the claiming of this area, of course, luckily we have the Antarctic Treaty and all this, like in a freezer, but uh, from the political point of view, each of the countries, we are still doing different things. So 1987, at this time, long time ago anyway, but we have six stations opening around at this time, still going. Some they were run by the army, some by the navy, some by the air force. So when I arrived there, I realized I was going to be, and I was the first biologist to spend whole year in the place. So most of the other ones, the ones that provide the logistics, they were all from the army. So it was a, a bit disbalanced relationship, <laughs> if we can say it. So the, the idea is, because this was the only station with families, Esperanza, is as the possibility to have families the researcher that was leading the project, who is from Argentina, living in Canada, he said, okay, we are going to try to put a step of research in this place and be able, in a few years even, to bring researchers with families that are going to spend the winter here, so researchers with more background, so they can take more, uh, all the data that was taken, start to process the data, whatever. So, with, with this general idea, because he was living in Canada doing a postdoc, he came with his... Uh, director of the postdoc from University of Rimouski at Quebec. And so it's going to be a first five-year project, coastal ecology, understand the ecology of the place. So we want to know the change in quantity and quality and different types of species of microalgae growing in the bottom, growing in the water column on the underside of the sea ice during the winter. And according to this change, also how change the quantity and the main environment from the bentos moving then to the underside of the sea ice, the main herbivores, that one are amphipods, so they can move to the underside of the sea ice, and the other ones are the limpets, that they just move to deeper waters when all the shallow waters are covered by ice. So we were diving uh, 5, 10, 15 meters deep and also in the intertidal area, so it was a very busy sampling project during the whole year. The diving program, were you operating under sea ice or among loose ice? So, for one point, for the diving program, we have one diver with experience that he has been a uh, whole year in Juban Station, another one from Argentina, but he was just during the summer. And then the other two divers that we were together during the whole year, they were from the army, that they were not professional divers itself, so they were from the, these special military forces that has done the courses of diving or parachute, the whole thing. So they were really strong, ready to do anything. <laughs> and so during the summer was much more easy. The, the key other point, it was it's a very windy place. So we really have to take care about the wind. We didn't have proper equipment really. Also a very small boat, 25 horsepower engine, not radius. And 
But then as the season started to go, when the autumn came, we, we started to have uh, the sea ice at one point that during the winter was as wide as almost one meter. So we make a hole on the sea ice and then we dive through the sea ice. I, I'm not a diver. There were much less regulations and during this time. So uh, during the summer I have the chance to dive. It was not deep water, just 10 meters, a bit more than this. In my case, just to try to decide which is going to be the different sampling places that we're going to follow. And of course, it was incredible to see the penguins under the water, seals, all these kind of things. It was amazing, this experience. And then when the winter came, we, a few times I also went underside the sea ice. So it's incredible to remember this underside of the sea ice, different shapes, the bubbles that they release, it seems like a hole. And then when the algae started to grow there, I remember the, when the spring started to come, all the amphipods, all the females, when they're releasing the, the, the young ones, and so they're all feeding on the, under the sea ice. So this was an incredible thing. They were also sampled. We were also sampling these amphipods on the side of the sea ice. So it was a very busy project. And we were also collecting amphipods and limpets to do other kind of studies in the laboratory, metabolism, consumption of oxygen, to see how it changed the metabolism during the uh, growing season, summer season, how this decreased during the winter season. So we were really very busy. We have many, many things to do. And of course, it was much more difficult during the winter. Perhaps we just to sample during the summer when we need some amphipods to the lab. We just go to a tide pool with a small net, a container, walk enjoy the, the view, whatever. <laughs> but during the winter, all this was covered by ice. So we need to make the hole on the ice and we trap uh, seaweeds, put seaweeds in, in big like bags. And so then these seaweeds were totally covered by amphipods. And then in the lab, we can collect them. And <coughs> hope by um, at the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which species of birds are making nests there? Yeah, Hope Bay, this is one of the, the first things that do you realize and you are impressed when I arrived first time. It was early January when I arrived, 1987, early January. So the station was built just at the edge of a huge Adelie penguin colony. I think now there are a bit more than 100,000 breeding pairs. The number has been decreasing in the last 30 years, something like this, but I read recently from a census, the numbers are something like this, 100,000 breeding pairs, and a few also gentus, but much less. So mostly we have uh, these huge Adelie penguins, and then we have other birds related to the penguins, as the skuas, Norwegian bill, also kelp gulls, so small colony of cormorants around, but mostly the Adelie penguins are walking around the buildings, so it's a relatively the station of a good size um, because there has been living families there. How, ma how many people have had their families come and stay? How, like what sort of population of children would be there through the, through the year? So when I, when I was there, there were four families uh, and there were 12 children. The older one was a girl from 12 years old. The younger one was a baby less than one year old. So there were four women that they were the wife of different crew of the station, no? mostly all from the army. So they were the teachers. 
and so there was a small school. I think after this has changed in Argentina for political reasons again. The government of the province of Tierra del Fuego, but because politically we have Provincia de Tierra del Fuego, Antarctica, e Islas del Atlántico Sur. So Antarctica from Argentina is like a dependence of Tierra del Fuego. So now they are sending teachers from Tierra del Fuego itself. And uh, maybe the name, the number of families is about the same. Now a bit more, six, seven families, something like this. 20 kids, no more than this. And after your time at Esperanza, uh, you moved on to another station for subsequent seasons? So I spent a whole year in Esperanza, and then this was mostly following the whole idea of the project that's going to be five years old, so whatever. So then I tried to be involved in doing something, uh, research more focused for, for myself, no? with the idea that you could have the chance to, to go to Canada, with this research that has been here. So after a whole year, I returned to Buenos Aires for months, and then back to Antarctica for another seven months, trying to follow in the whole project, and then focusing in another different, more specific thing. And after, yes, these seven months in October, I went back to Buenos Aires because we have an accident. And this is new that you don't know, Matt. No. I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> so the point is that we, I consider now that we were really very lucky considering the, the diving equipment, the boat, not any radio, all these kind of things. No? But what's happened really is that also we have a very small hut, something like 400 meters of our house, where we kept our uh, diving equipment, the tanks and the suits and the engine from the boat. But this was freezing, of course, 20 degrees or whatever, 30 degrees below zero, a bit more less than this was the, the coldest temperature during this. So we need to heat the place. But the uh, electric uh, facilities of the place were very basic, no connections or whatever. So just a wire that when the winds was blowing, going inside, moves a lot. So the point that was a fire in this hut in October, was two in the morning, we were all surprised. And so we ran to the place and so we lost all the diving equipment during this fire. All this small hut was destroyed. Part of our equipment was there. And so this was really and before and after with this activity because we don't have any more the, the diving equipment. And so after this, of course, uh, there were different things going on about responsibilities and whatever, so we stayed there for a few more weeks with the, one of the other divers, and then I returned to Buenos Aires. And so this was one of the tipping points with the idea of this project, keep going in the place with the army, because from my perspective now, following, I was just having a degree in biology, so no much experience been in the field in Antarctica for a whole year. I dive because I like, I'm a good swimmer, I have been swimming, so I have the chance to do this. But now I realize many years after, how many other things that you need to know for security, safety, or whatever. So we were lucky to feel that we are safe now, that we survived. There were different things that happened during this hey, year. Hey. How you doing? Hello. Good times? Yeah, good times. Good, good. An unexpected bonus interview at a boating festival in Williamstown. 
where I encountered Hobson's Bay City Council councillor and iced coffee listener, Jonathan Marsden, and his father, John, who flew for the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions in the 1970s and 1980s. I sat down with John somewhere noisy and recorded the following interview. Nice to meet you too. I'm sitting down with John Marsden at the Williamstown Tall Ships Festival. John was a pilot of turboporters in Antarctica in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Is that correct? That summer, 79-80. How did you land that caper? Well, I was in the army uh, at the time, and the army well, I was flying Pilatus porters in the army and had a, a bunch of hours on it. And um, I uh, saw an ad in the paper. After having gone through a, a couple of aborted starts, a mate of mine from the army, a bloke called Errol Driver, he'd done a couple of um, uh, tours in the Antarctic, and then we, we were trying to meet, get me down there. But I happened to see this ad in the paper by, from Forrester Stevens, and they uh, advertising a porter pilot for that year, for a porter. But I happened to be in Melbourne on a job, so I flew my Pilatus porter that I was flying into Essendon and applied for the job, and they said, oh. <laughs> You'll do. <laughs> <laughs> Written for you almost. So it was, yeah, pretty much. And um, so I, yeah, and then did a, did a ski endorsement at uh, Falls Creek, where it's, I don't, probably still is a registered skiway. Uh, so we slid around there for a, uh, a day and a half and then um, a few, then end up uh, going down there at the end of that year, yeah. And the 79. At the time, the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions were using the, the Nella Dan, was it? They were. We went down the Nella, yeah. And from uh, uh, Port Melbourne, yeah, because uh, Anari were in uh, Melbourne at that stage before they'd moved to Hobart. Yep. So, yeah. How much work did it take to get a Pilatus porter aboard a ship? Not a lot. Uh, it, it hadn't been the first time, it had been going down there for a while. And uh, so there was um, racks, they had racks that you put, they took the wings off the aeroplane uh, and, um, uh, and put them in racks and then slung the porter up onto the uh, ship, put, put the, um, uh, the racks, the wings of the racks in, uh, down below and away we went. Yeah. And at disem- last, the, disembarked at Mawson? No, we disembarked, uh, we left on, uh, it was about Melbourne Cup Day, uh, early November. 79 and we um, got down the, uh, we were supposed to go to Davis, couldn't get in there because of the ice, so we ended up going to Mawson uh, and we stopped about 30 miles, the, the fast ice was about 30 miles off the coast, so we pulled up alongside the ice, slung the quarter or put the wings back on and, and we started ferrying people and supplies into Mawson and uh, uh, before the Nella went back to uh, Melbourne for the next load and uh, yeah, they started operating but the aim of the game down that year was uh, to do ice radar surveys uh, in uh, and uh, magnetometer surveys over uh, over uh, end, uh, not Enderby Land over um, uh, Mount King area west of Mawson between Mawson and Mola Desnia and uh, so we had a had to rig rig the port up with an ice radar which um, sends a, a message sends a signal down and you get a return off the off the ice, top of the ice, and the return off the ground underneath the ice, so they can measure the depth of the ice, and we did that. And then a magnetometer thing uh, measure the uh, Earth's sort of magnetic anomalies, uh, a little bomb-shaped thing you drag out the back of the airplane about uh, I don't know 50, 60 feet, and uh, see what they 
typically shows if there's um, what magnetic anomaly, so it'll, it'll indicate metal or, or whatever. Yeah. So that's what we did. And did that for four months. And then um, we're supposed to bring the thing back. But as I said, that um, the wind every year, well, I think it's the 9th of March, you can set your watch by it apparently. That's when the ice starts to freeze, the water starts to freeze. And they, um, so the, it started to freeze. And the wind was blowing, so I couldn't uh, take the wings off uh, in the wind, and the skipper wouldn't wait, so I had to leave the airplane there, unfortunately. And uh, the next day it come, there was no wind at all, which I sort of predicted. But the skipper wouldn't listen to me, of the Nella. And I said, it's one more day, it's one more day. But anyway, it didn't happen, and uh, the, the crew down there put it on a barge and, and pushed it into a hangar that was left over from when the RAAF was operating down there. And uh, that stayed there for the year, and they picked it up the next year. Lucky to have gotten it back, there's a lot of airframes still down there. Well, yeah, I was, um, I think it was uh, one of the first, or Errol, Errol Driver, the bloke that started, got me interested. Um, he, he was the first one to bring, a, bring an aeroplane back, take it down and bring it back. <laughs> Were you employed by an ARA or by a company? No, it was by, by uh, it, was not, it wasn't, Forrester Stevens used to have the contract and then they sold out to Slee Aviation. So I was, took leave without pay from the Army and um, uh, worked for uh, Slee Aviation as a, a, a contract pilot there. Yeah. And you mentioned Molodesnu, did you have any contact with the Russians? We did, we did, we had a day, we were supposed to go there for a day, and, uh, and just as a visit, one night, stay the night, and so we all flew over and we uh, got, met, met all the Russians, and, and, they, uh, and then a blizzard blew up, so uh, we ended up staying about four days there, and that was interesting, really, it was good actually, because um, the, uh, we, did, we went to the, that dinner that night, and it was all... Uh, Toasts and yeah, how good we are, and we didn't learn anything really. And uh, and then once the, we were just stuck there, so we just sat around and talked with these Russians, and it was fantastic. And uh, and I, because oh, I was in the army then, it was uh, in the seventies, it was the Cold War, and um, the uh, the local KGB bloke uh, was right onto me because they we had to tell them who was coming. Thank you for Does that pick up this? It's all good. <coughs> yeah. 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 So that we're able to. Uh, uh, I, I thought raw Russians would be burly, you know, the Russian bear bloke, and it was just all shapes and sizes, and uh, and they were just lovely blokes, you know. The, the, Interestingly, the, uh, it was 1980 when the um, uh, the Moscow Olympics on, and Moscow Olympics or yeah, 1980 yeah, was 80, Moscow. Moscow, yeah. So they had all the memorabilia, and we were all getting that. Uh, and the, the Yanks said because they and also the Russians had just moved into Afghanistan, so the Yanks said we're not going to your Olympics. See you later. And then the, and the, all the Russians, why not? <laughs> to me, you know, so what, what have we done? You know, so well, you've just invaded Afghanistan. <laughs> so, uh, but the, 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 only about oh, three or four days, before, three or four weeks before, uh, one of them gave me a picture of a, a, a Hercules C1, US Navy C130 Hercules landing at Molodesny to pick up a sick Russian bloke to take him to. So, all this animosity, it, it just doesn't 
happen. No, it's, it's like yeah. being at sea. Yeah. You help. Yeah. And uh, so they flew this Russian, the crook flew into um, Auckland, fixed him up, flew to, uh, over to the, the Yank base, fixed him up, and then flew him back to New Zealand, sent him home. So it was all that. That was just fantastic to see. Yeah. So, yeah. And what are the special challenges for a fixed-wing pilot flying in Antarctic conditions? Uh, whiteout's a big, big problem. Um, yeah, and, and but the good thing about the Antarctic weather is it's really good or really bad. So uh, you, you don't have to make too many decisions. <laughs> uh, we got caught out. I got caught out once. Uh, had to land halfway between, and we. Uh, the place couldn't get to Mawson because there was fog and couldn't get to this white out at Mount King so I couldn't get back so I landed in this place uh, that we had a, a bit of a fuel dump uh, and all, all the survival gear we had in the aeroplane we had tents and, had the, and two sleeping bags each and all the rest of it so we ended up camping and then we, that was when we had one of the dog teams half the dog team on board as well so I had to stake them out to tie the aeroplane down it was a bit of a nightmare but yeah I only got caught out once in, in four months, yeah, and I think I flew about 250 hours down there. Yeah. And flying with dog teams is its own set of challenges? Yeah, the plan was that um, the, 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 the OIC that year had, it was a bit of a legend, a bloke called Sid Kirkby, and he was, um, uh, he'd been down there in 56, I think, uh, his first trip as a surveyor, and he, a bit of an adventurer, trying, I think. Uh, so he got the uh, ship to drop him about oh, 200, 300 miles around the coast from Mawson. Then he was going to run back in the dog team and survey the survey that part of Antarctica or the coast, and, which he did. So he thought he'd relive all that, and then he, he uh, because they had a, a um, what's name uh, a base at Mount King, which is about 100, 150 miles west of Mawson. So the plan was, me, I'd fly the dog teams out, the one dog team, and then they, at the end of the end of their summer season out there, they'd go back in a tractor train, uh, um, three or four D4, D, D9 bulldozers pulling sleds, and uh, and the, the dogs would run back alongside them, or you know, ahead. And, yeah, so that was the that was the plan. So we we flew the dogs out uh, in two lots, and um, and then. Had a bit of fun with them out at Mawson, out at uh, Mount King, and all the hierarchy in, in uh, Melbourne got to hear about it. So they said, "We're not going to, you're not allowed to do that." Sorry. <laughs> so I had to find more wang again, and that's where we got caught out one one time, and sleeping out in the middle of nowhere. Which is the, if I was ever going to buy anything down the Antarctic, that's where I'd buy it. It was on the confluence of two glaciers, and it was a high sort of. A, Dome, big flat, fairly well, a bit flat. You know, you could land a border there, and uh, and but you had this panoramic view of these two glaciers coming together, and uh, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful place. How do the dogs take to riding in your in your turbo quarter? Well, uh, we doped them up with something, um, and they were pretty sleepy, so we dragged them in and we tied them down. Uh, we had a tie-down point at each corner of the, the cabin. Uh, so all their bums are into the middle, and uh, and then we had one uh, tied down in the middle. So, but he he couldn't lift his head up more than about six inches. So uh, we had all that sorted out, and uh, that was fine. We've got two loads out there, and no, the first load out, and the second load was the 
the bloke tied down in the middle was Nugus, which is Seagoon, spelled backwards. He's a big black and uh, anyway, he was just about to land at uh, Mount King and he broke loose and he looked around and he's got four dogs pinned that he that can't get up. <laughs> so it was, it was on. <laughs> but when, when, with a bit of adrenaline, the old dogs broke loose, broke loose and it was a big dog fight in the back of the aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was a challenge, but <laughs> we had to pull it apart and sort of let them go uh, and they all ran away and they all came back eventually. Yeah. Astounding. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, John. It's been fascinating talking to you. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. No. Thanks for the support coming in from the PayPal account and the Patreon. Funds are being put aside to ensure I get to Hobart in August for the Australian Antarctic Festival. You can contribute at patreon.com forward slash ice underscore coffee. Contributions of one dollar or more gain you access to my image library and you can use the pictures as you see fit without attribution or further payment. Take care and appreciate your coffee.